So if you're not having fun doing it, you know, find something else. I ran off and joined the circus. It's kind of what I think of as my career. That is my job. That's my personal mission as an academic leader and academic administrator. And when I can see that happening, that's my favorite thing. Hello and welcome to the Theater Art Life podcast sponsored by ClearCom. ClearCom is the leader in voice communication since 1968 for theater and the performing arts. When the show must go on, ClearCom is there to keep the team on cue. The Theater Art Live podcast puts the spotlight on those who create live entertainment around the world, the culture creators and the backstage masters. My name is Kat Landry. And my name is Anna Robb. In these next few episodes, we are recording in collaboration with my fellow podcaster and now friend Ethan from Artistic Finance. Today, we're talking with Linda Essig. Linda Essig, MFA, PhD, and former lighting designer, was appointed Baruch College's Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs on July 1, 2021. She previously served as Dean of the College of Arts and Letters at California State University, Los Angeles, where she was responsible for nine academic departments, four centers, and the Ronald H. Silverman Fine Arts Gallery. Prior to Cal State LA, Dr. Essig was Director of Enterprise and Entrepreneurship Programs for the Herberger Institute for Design and the Arts at Arizona State University and Founding Director of its School of Theater and Film. She also served as Chair of the Department of Theater and Drama and Director of University Theater at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Essig has authored four books and numerous articles and book chapters, on both arts entrepreneurship and theatrical lighting design. Her most recent book, published in 2022, is Creative Infrastructures, Artist, Money, and Entrepreneurial Action. Hello, Linda. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Now, Linda, welcome to the show. Before we get into what we really want to talk about is your new book, but before that, I'd like to ask you how you got into uh, lighting design originally. Lighting design. Well, that goes back to like high school, which was a long time ago. I won't say how long. I was not cast in the high school play and said, okay, I'll take care of the lighting instead and got totally hooked. I think I was like 14 years old at the time um, and started doing that. And I was an intern at a professional theater while I was in high school and, and then went right from there to NYU to study design. So it started really young. Um, and then over time evolved, and now I do other things. Was engaged with lighting design pretty much from the early to mid '80s through um, 2008 was when I designed my last show. And when you, when you, after you finished, what made you decide to finish doing the completion of lighting design and move on to other things? That's a big transition, right? Um, it's a big transition, but it was a long, slow, and gradual one. So, uh, and and it was something I've done throughout my professional career, which is think about what kind of impact I want to have and what kind of work I want to make. And I did that for quite some time as a lighting designer, but then became interested in other ways of um, other ways of being creative. And that included being creative in my role as a professor or in my role as an academic leader in program building. And then also became very interested in uh, organizational behavior, in, um, in entrepreneurship, and decided to focus my 
it's my intellectual and creative energy there rather than in lighting design. A lot, it's interesting that you say entrepreneurship because a lot of people don't think of the arts and in the industry with entre- entrepreneurship as the same in the same realm often. So tell me how, how you see uh, entrepreneurship in the arts and how important is that? Well, that's what I, that's, that's what I've been doing for the last, I don't know, 15 years, well, maybe not quite that long, 12 years is explaining that to people, right? So what that connection is, it's really about creating something of value and then connecting it with its audience. And that's what entrepreneurs do. And that's what, that's what artists do. So whether it's as a lighting designer, as a photographer, as a visual artist, you, know, you, you, you have to bundle resources together. You have to take creative risks and then put your work out into the world. Um, and that's, that is entrepreneurship. And that's really what the, the new book is about. And what would you say the steps between going from artist who doesn't think of themselves as an entrepreneur to being yeah. an artist who does think of themselves as an entrepreneur. Yeah, that's an interesting question the way you phrased it because you said think of themselves as an entrepreneur. So mm-hmm. artists may be behaving in entrepreneurial ways, whether they're thinking they are or not. And many artists will um, reject the title entrepreneur for personal or even political reasons, but that doesn't change the the nature of their work, which is to create something new and put it out in the world, which is an entrepreneurial action. So not all artists will think of themselves as entrepreneurs. Um, and in writing creative infrastructures, I interviewed you know, 15 or so artists who, some of whom would identify as entrepreneurs and some who would say, well, no, I don't use that title. And I reject it for, for this reason or that reason. And then the in the course of the conversation is, well, I guess what I'm doing is entrepreneurship because what they're doing is, is creating something new and innovative and, and getting it out to, uh, to uh, an audience. And so in your um, sort of academic work, is this where you realized this, this niche or this uh, aspect that needed to be explained to people as they grew up through the industry? Well, I really, I started working on this around 2004. 2005, I was relatively new at ASU, and ASU was beginning to launch uh, its entrepreneurship at ASU uh, project through a grant from the Kauffman Foundation. And I, um, as I like to say, I accidentally on purpose ran into ASU's president, Michael Crow, in the hall uh, outside of, of an event. And I said, how can how can the the School of Theater and Film be part of this? You know, we have ideas. And he put me in touch with the person who was leading that effort. And we became part of this overarching entrepreneurship at ASU project in 2005 um, through a program that at the time was called uh, the Performing Arts Venture Experience or PAVE. It did evolve over time to include all of the arts and it changed its name to just PAVE, not Performing Arts Venture Experience. So, uh, at that time, 2005, this is, keep in mind, before the Great Recession, it was a lot of actually explaining how um, artists, at that time, especially theater artists, but any artist, could kind of harness the knowledge base of uh, business entrepreneurship to help promote their work. Once the Great Recession hit in 2008, I think arts training programs across the country 
looked at themselves and said, oh, we also have to teach our students to be in the economy, however you want to phrase that. But but we have to not only teach our students to be artists and to be creators and creative people who have an impact that way, but also teach them how to sustain their lives, right? And to sustain their lives, they have to understand how to make money from their art. And if they can make money from their art, these and I'm thinking that they there's like students across the country, if they can make money from their art, then they don't have to be working as a barista. They could be working on their art and generating their revenue there. Um, so that's sort of the, the timeline of how this happened. And uh, at the time that I started doing this work, 2005-ish, um, there were like six programs that I could find um, that focused on arts business training in universities. And by the time I stepped down from my position at ASU, we had just done a, a study, like a landscape of uh, entrepreneurship education in the arts. There were well over 150 programs that were in some way or another approaching an entrepreneurial perspective on, on arts training. So there was a sea change some somewhat in reaction, I think, to the, to the great recession, but we were doing it before then, because it's, it's a, I, I always felt it was a moral imperative in teaching artists. You can't just teach, you have to, you can't just teach artists to be artists. You have to also teach them how to make a living and a life. Totally right. Absolutely. Couldn't agree Absolutely. more. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and do you have any financial advice for young artists, young designers, young theater makers of any kind, uh, moving forward? How can they actually make money from their art? Well, financial advice or life advice, I mean, they're connected, but sort of slightly different. Um, I, I would say that especially people who are trained in some way with a BFA or an MFA and whatever their field is, uh, should keep their eyes open to opportunities that they might not have learned about in school. Uh, and, and one of the core mindsets of entrepreneurship is opportunity recognition. So, so uh, if one finishes school with a very narrow view of what their art is, as I did. I mean, I had an MFA from NYU in the mid-80s when what you did was you got out of school and you worked on Broadway. And that was a very narrowly defined and narrow um, market for the work of a lighting designer. Um, and so coming out of school, if regard whether you're a lighting designer or a visual artist or a composer or dancer, and dancers are actually really good at this, um, in my experience, is is being really open to opportunities um, of any kind to use your creative talents and creative expertise to make that living in a life. Mm. When you started out as a lighting designer, did you feel that you were good at business and money um, or, or no? I don't think it was really on my radar that much. Um, at the time I was, I was very young when I finished my MFA and, um, because for reasons I, I don't have to go into here and I was just happy to get the next gig and the next gig and the next gig and string those gigs together to try to make enough money to pay my rent. Um, I worked as a temp in between because I had to pay that rent. Right. So I, I, I don't think it was as much on my mind uh, at that time. And in fact, I know it wasn't because I remember consciously thinking as this entrepreneurship program was ramping up, 
you know, years later, 20 years later in 2000. So I finished NYU in 85. So 20 years later in 2005 thinking, oh, well, I've been an entrepreneur all along. I've had to market myself to producers and directors. I've had to put together a package of my work, you know, portfolio. I've had to manage my own freelance career. And I continued a freelance career while I was teaching up to that point. So um, it was making that connection, you know, years later. A lot of times I think young artists just look at what's right in front of them, totally understandable because they have to, like like I did, they have to pay the rent, right? Um, and, and taking that long view is a little harder, but having some um, uh, exposure to arts business while you're a student or while you're sort of in the early stages of your career, I think can be really helpful. So I didn't exactly answer your question about financial advice, right? I, I guess my bottom line financial advice does it's whether it's an artist or whether it's, you know, managing a, a, a budget of a huge organization is don't spend more than you make. You know, Good advice for any, <laughs> anyone, <laughs> really. <right>? Like just, <laughs> Your expenses should not exceed your revenue. Mm. Um, now, I, I will say about that, there are some economic models that indicate you sh- you can actually borrow and go into debt when you're younger because your future lifetime earnings is going to be at a certain rate. But I, I, in general, I think to lead a, a, an unstressful life around money is just make sure you don't spend more than you make. Yeah. And if you spend, if you make more than you spend, then save some for later Mm. because we know that there's going to be ups and downs in that artistic life. It's funny because I think that like a lot of people go um, out of university with a debt to start with. Right. And then they, and then they work through that and don't think in the, in their twenties about, you know, putting stuff away or for retirement. And I don't think I really woke up till I was about 28 and I'd got rid of my university debt. And now I had some, cash was like well now where does that go like I can't just put it in the bank and have it not work for me you know and but it was still late like I think you know if I had have had the foresight to put away some money and into some investments from the start I'd be much better off to this day than than I would have been when I actually started looking at that. But would you have been happier so you know I I also I graduated with some debt and I eventually paid it off and then I had a little extra money and I thought well what wow, I can like do something fun that has nothing to do with work. And at the time I was before I had a family, I decided to get a pilot's license, which is like not an inexpensive hobby. (laughs) But I decided to do that, you know, in the moment. Um, You know, I think that we're sort of inculcated in the U.S. somewhat to be, and, and this might be different where you are, but to, to sort of live in this austerity mindset and, um, you know, it's not necessarily the healthiest way to live. I love that you said that, actually, because I think a lot of the times people say, you know, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. But, you know, you, you do have to have some fun at some point. So I love that even though you're going to advise us on your book, that you're still saying, like, let's have some fun at some point. <laughs> Absolutely. If it's not fun, if you're not, in, and especially in the arts, you know, you're not going to make a ton of money in the arts, right? or in academia, I'll have you know. Um, so if you're not having fun doing it, you know, find something else. Fun and getting personal satisfaction, right? So it's not just fun. It's also the personal satisfaction of being in a position of, of using your creativity to make an impact. And now a note from our sponsor. The Theatre Art Life podcast is proud to be sponsored by ClearCom. 
ClearCom is the leader in voice communication since 1968 for theater and the performing arts. When the show must go on, ClearCom is there to keep the team on cue. You can find them at clearcom.com. Go check them out. So your recent book, Creative Infrastructures, Artists, Money and Entrepreneurial Action, what do you hope that people will get out of that book um, when they read it? That's a great question. Um, so it's a book that's, uh, it's not one thing, it's 10 separate essays. So each essay has a slightly different function, I guess. Uh, but I hope what artists will get out of it is a sense of hope that they can do this, right? That that Because I, I'm not interviewing, you know, Damien Hurst and Jeff Koons who have these monster successes uh, commercially, but like the artists down the street. And um, hopefully that's one thing is, oh, okay, there are artists in my neighborhood. There are artists, you know, I live in an apartment building, there are artists in my apartment building and they're making a living and a life. So there's that piece. There's also, you know, there's one of the essays is about um, owning real estate. And um, interviewing a couple of artists who were able to, and this is this is a good kind of debt to have. So, I, in my view, there's two good kinds of debt: education. It's okay to graduate in debt. Don't let the, don't let that stop you from getting a good education. And and real estate. So, you know, I I, I talk with one artist who's um, she's now uh, an older artist. She's in her 80s, mid to late 80s. She's still making work, but she. Uh, bought property when she was young and is able to have a steady studio space, you know, that, that, that has been a a rock for her, you know, or somebody else in New York city who was able to um, get into a a mixed use housing development where you had to meet a a Mac where there's a salary ceiling. Right. And, and they were able to hold on to that. And that's become a kind of anchor for their work that enabled them to do other kinds of work. So that's another kind of advice area, but some, some of the essays are a little more theoretical because I am, you know, at, at, after 30 some years in academia, I am an academic. So there's some theory um, in there as well. And some of the essays and some of, uh, and the last one is really just like a future thinking about what if, you know, what if we had a different kind of tax structure that rewarded creativity instead of wealth accretion, you know, what, what would that look like? Um, so there's there's uh, lots of different things in that in the book. It's like I said, it's ten ten separate essays, and you can you can pick and choose and and read the parts you want to read. Um, there's some case studies about uh, there's a composer uh, in in there, and um, several interviews with visual artists, um, a lighting designer. My friend and colleague Clifton Taylor is one of the case studies in the book as well. Very nice. Sounds very interesting. Um, you you describe yourself after thirty years in academia as an academic. What exactly was your path from being lighting designer to entrepreneur to academic, and how much of that overlapped? And when did you start calling yourself academic versus oh, designer? That's, <laughs> um, oh, after I got my PhD which was way okay. later. So I was okay. 51. <laughs> valid, point, was... valid point. Valid <laughs> point. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's a valid time to start saying it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I had been in academia for a long time, but I was 51 when I got a PhD. Um, mm. So I always consider myself a lighting designer. I still consider myself a lighting designer because you never quite let go of that mindset. 
but there, uh, all of those phases overlapped. So you, you, you know, you said, when exactly did this happen? And it's like, well, it's not, there aren't clear breaks really, except I, I mark in my head that 2008 was the last time I designed something, but I had been on a downward, tra- downward, downward trajectory sounds bad. I would, had been d- designing less and less on purpose and writing more and more. And I, I mean, I loved lighting design, but part of that was a personal choice. I was a mother with two young children and was traveling a lot and decided I didn't want to do that, that I wanted to make a different kind of choice and could still be really creative and exercise my brain without having to travel around the country to Lord theaters to design shows. So that was, that was a choice I made sort of around when my youngest was, I'm sorry, when my oldest was about one and a half, two years old. And then, you know, and then making that choice enabled me to have a second child, which is great. Um, so we, you know, we make those choices and I'm going to be blunt. I think women have to, are, have to make those choices with a little more distinction, perhaps, despite the many, many opportunities that I have that my mother's generation wouldn't have had. It's still some choices, you know, around family versus freelance life. But I was a freelance, I freelanced here in New York City after my MFA for a while. And I, so I was doing the thing, the narrow thing that my graduate study said I should be doing. I was an assistant designer on a couple of Broadway shows. And I was like, you know, this is not the life I want to have. It wasn't about the work. It was about the life. So we, we, that's, that's another thing about the book. It's about, you know, make, it's not just about making a living. It's also about making a life. So, you know, the life I wanted wasn't going to be doing that. I also thought, well, I've been doing this for several years. I think I have enough knowledge now to share it with other people. So I'm going to look at maybe teaching. And I applied for two two teaching positions only, one at University of California, San Diego, and one at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Both had fairly well-known lighting design programs at the time in the mid-80s. And uh, I, got, I was fortunate to get one of those two positions. Chris Perry, who's, uh, may he rest in peace, happened to get the position at San Diego at the time. So that was in 1988, I want to say. And, you know, I, at that time I thought I was a lighting designer who was teaching and I had a three-year probationary contract as a, you know, as an assistant professor. And I thought I'd come back to New York after three years. And 16 years later, I, I left Wisconsin for another academic institution. So, you know, things evolve and change. I think one of the things about, you asked me earlier about financial advice, Again, it's not financial advice, it's life advice, is, but it's related to that keeping your eyes open to opportunity and not having a, a mindset that's closed to changing and evolving over time. It was the right choice for me at that time. And then I made other choices that were right at the time. And we're, we're never just looking at what's right for me in my career, but it's also career and life. And I think acknowledging that is really important. Yeah, I think you've touched on something really significant there when you said that the work was still great, but it wasn't what you wanted for your life. There are, I think, a lot of people who struggle to find the difference between those two things. Um, I think that the pandemic, at least in my own experience and that of my peers, helped to separate the two a little bit more. But I wonder if you have any advice for folks who find that their work and life is so intertwined that they have trouble finding their own identity outside of their work and what it is that they actually want out of life. 
Do you have any advice for those people? Well, I'm not a therapist, um, so I, I'm not <laughs> sure that, that that I'm I'm able to give that kind of advice. But I actually think that separating them is not for me. I'm not so for for me separating them and creating a bright line and talking about balance is not healthy. I talk about it as symbiosis. And I have a, if you go back to my blog, creativeinfrastructure.org, thank you for allowing me to put that plug in. Um, If you, and you search symbiosis, I have one or more blog posts over the years. I mean, that blog was pretty active for about 10 years. There's a, there is a post, couple of blog posts about this, you know, like you, when you, when you talk about work-life balance, they're always separate. They're always dichotomous. They're always in, in conflict with one another. But if you think about it as a symbiosis, then you, you can find a healthy way to integrate the, the two. And for some people living inside the work is the right thing to do. I, I mean, I see that with visual artists, especially, and, and having to have that kind of focus and that need to make their work, but that's right for them, you know? And I do also recommend, like I said, I'm not a therapist. If you're struggling with this, can't recommend that enough. You know, so there are professionals who can help sort, sort that out. Right. And, and help you manage around those distinctions between work and life. I really like the answer of the symbiosis because like we do spend a lot of hours, right? So it's not like we can do the eight hour work day and clock off and go into <laughs> the home life. It's, it's really all integrated. I'm, my children grew up in the circus and I think they thought that uh, my off, all offices looked like a, like a, like a stage, but <laughs> unfortunately it doesn't. Um, I, I assume you don't mean the circus literally, although maybe you do. I, again, on my blog, I, I was, when I was thinking about this, you know, I was think there's, there's, I ran off and joined the circus. It's kind of what I think of as my career. It's like, not what my siblings did. One is a lawyer and one's actually a psychotherapist. And, you know, it's like, I ran off and joined the circus because I went to see Pippin when I was 12 on Broadway. It was my first Broadway show. And I was like, I want to do that. I have a similar story, Linda. So that's that's how I ended up in the arts. And when I do say my kids grew up in the circus, I do mean literally. So, okay. um, yeah, Good. they, they, Good. they were, grew up fly, seeing flying performers and crazy things happening. So uh, they think my job's boring now. Um, the uh, other question I wanted to ask you was um, a lot of people in our industry um, have a lot of of wonderful stories, a lot of experience and a lot of advice. And you've managed to go from the industry into a point where you've been able to write about uh, your work and, and advise people on that. What what was your path to, you know, were you always able to, you know, stream words together to create cohesive messages or is this something that's evolved over time to write? Because I think a lot of people would love to know how to go from where they are in the industry to be able to write about it. Um, it has evolved over time. Um, I didn't have a traditional undergraduate or graduate education. I have a BFA and an MFA from NYU, so I went to an arts conservatory. But I had a strong high school education where I was forced to write. Um, and going into academia, writing more was welcome. So uh and it was also something I could do while home with my young children. I didn't have to travel to write. Not everybody is a good writer. 
and you have to have a story to tell and you, and, and you have to, one would have to accept co-authorship or strong editorship if they don't necessarily write well themselves, but there has to be a story there to tell, right? Uh, that's, that's part of it, you know, and my earliest published writing was like manuals for architectural lighting, you know, through the Eliminating Engineering Society. It was pretty dry stuff, you know, but that sort of trains you. And I did, I'm trying to think of what I was, so then writing about my lighting design process, that was kind of something I had to do anyway, because I was teaching. So if I'm teaching, I'm writing notes and then then, I put the notes together and I fill in some of the blanks and, oh, then you have lighting in the design idea, which is now in its third edition. And my second book, The Speed of Light, was kind of easy to write because it is an oral history. So the words are the words of other people. And I was kind of this meta editor um, and, and put the various excerpts of these interviews together to create a kind of story the writing and then writing a blog like that, you know, blogs were a thing as we know, like 15 years ago. And I started a blog. I think it was the last day of 2010. Um, And you get into a discipline of writing every day or every, you know, I did two or three posts a week for the first year and then it was one a week and then it's trailed off. And now it's, you know, like most blogs somewhat on hiatus. Um, But that, was a great way to learn to be a better writer. And you get feedback from, you know, the quote unquote market from the audience um, when you do the blog. So I, that's, I think that's how I grew into my writing life. And then of course, later on pursuing a PhD, I had to write a lot and I had to write a lot that was academic. So one of the challenges of, of being a writer is writing for the audience. And um, I was hoping creative infrastructures, from my perspective, creative infrastructures is written for a lay audience. Um, a lay person read the first essay and said, I can't read this. Now, the first essay is very academic. The rest of the book is not. So I wish this person who was going to be a reviewer could, could have gotten past that. But you, know, you have to write for different audiences. Did you start the blog on your own accord? Was that just for you to yeah, practice, get some messages out? Exactly. It was absolutely for that purpose. And also, I, I had been at ASU as the director of the school of theater and film. And I, I decided to step down and um, I was on sabbatical and I was like, wow, I'm on sabbatical. I'm working on some writing projects. I'm working on this PhD. I have these two small children at home. I'm not talking to any adults. So I need to, <laughs> I need to do some writing. That's a little short, you know, short form, short timeline where I can get some more immediate feedback uh, from adults. So that's, that's was part of the impetus for it. Um, and then it, it got some traction and a lot of what's in the book, the new book, Creative Infrastructures, is based on ideas that I worked out over the years on the blog. Uh, Kat, you got another question or should we move on to our final ones? I think we should move on. Wonderful. All right. So because we've already been talking for half an hour, that, that happened really quickly because right. you got some really interesting, uh, interesting points for us, Linda. So we always ask um, our, our podcast guests the same two last questions. So we're going to ask you this. This was the first one. What's your most favorite thing about your job or the industry? Well, my job now is provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at Baruch College. So my most favorite thing in this job is helping our students and our faculty su- to succeed. That is my job. That's my personal mission as an academic leader and academic administrator. And when I can see that happening, that's my favorite thing. 
That's great. And if there's one thing that you could change about your job or the industry as a whole, what might it be? Well, when you say the industry, which industry are you referring to? I just want to make sure that I'm clear on that. Well, it could be either the wider entertainment industry or perhaps the world of academia. It's really up to you. Which one do you think has something worth changing? I'm in the change business. In other words, I'm in the evolution business, I would say. I'm helping a large organization to evolve and be its best self as an organization. Coming to one thing is a real challenge, and I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> She's got all the challenges to change. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair That's enough. Amazing. Well, I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put it this way. I am sometimes asked, what does a provost do? And my response now is, do you know the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once? <laughs> When I heard that job title, that movie title, I thought, oh, that's my job. (laughs) All the things. That's what I always say. I do all the things. Exactly. So imagine being a, it's like being a stage manager, honestly. Or it's, it it is, in some ways it's very similar to that. It's like being a stage manager. The director is the president. I'm the stage manager and I make all the things happen. Although (laughs) I don't, I make, because there's, you know, 1500 people. So there's 1500 people making all those things happen. But you activate people to do the things that need to be done. <laughs> theoretically, theoretically, that is the job. <laughs> Everything, everywhere, all at once. Oh, I love that. <laughs> and so where do people find your book, um, Linda? Yeah. So Creative Infrastructures, Artist Money and Entrepreneurial Action. Um, I, I would hope it's at a bookstore near you, but it's probably not. So in the United States, you can go to University of Chicago Press. Um, that's the U.S. distributor and Intellect Books is the publisher and the UK distributor Um, and your local bookstore can certainly order it uh, as well. Amazing. Linda, thank you so much time for for your time here on the Theatre Art Life podcast. I've really enjoyed meeting you. Thank you both so much. It was a delightful conversation. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your day or your evening, depending on where you are. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Take care. Bye-bye. Theatre Art Life is a global media site for entertainment. Memberships start at only 38 US dollars per year. You can have unlimited access to our daily published articles, including entertainment news and the writings of active industry professionals, ensuring that you are always up to date on the global happenings in the world of entertainment. Become a part of the international entertainment community and join us now at www.theaterartlife.com.